Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And wow, this was really, really special to have a wonderful conversation with my neighbor, but also an icon of sport, Frank Shorter. Frank shares his journey into running and when he realized that he had some ability and he describes the emotions of the terrorist attacks on the 1972 Olympics and how he had to con- compartmentalize the, the, the trauma of what happened and focus on the job at hand and race a marathon five days later. He discusses running into the stadium at those games with a two-minute lead and then what happens next. And he shares the story of the 1976 Montreal Games and his thoughts on drugs in sport. His relationship with the USA iconic runner Steve Prefontaine, otherwise known as Pre, and if you haven't watched a movie without called Without Limits, uh, that's a great story between uh, Steve Pre and, and Frank in that, um, and just the impact of Steve's sudden death and and how that impacted him, um, and just so much more in this one, just absolutely incredible. If you love sport, if you love sports history, then this is a must listen. Do yourself a favor. And listen all the way through to the end. You won't be disappointed. Now, a little bit of housekeeping before we go on. As per usual, thank you all for listening. I do truly appreciate it. Um, If you are enjoying the show, I'd love it if you could just share it on your social platforms. Um, That would really help me out, get the word out there. I'd love other people to enjoy listening to these incredible guests that I have. And or you can support the show's uh, partners. I've got Athletic Greens, Hyperice, and Form Swim Goggles. They're all just brilliant companies with amazing products. Um, so go check them out. Um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Wow, what a thrill. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. A quick mention of the show's partners. These are all great companies and products that I use daily. If you want to support the show, you'd be doing me a massive favor by supporting these brands. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice. Hyperice is my go-to solution for recovery and restoration. The handheld percussion therapy devices, the Normatec boots, and the vibrating rollers all release your deepest muscle tension and just aid your recovery. I own the Hypervolt Plus, I own the Hypervolt Go, the Normatec boots, and the vibrating rollers. And both my wife, Laura, and I use them every day before and after workouts and before bed. They're all just so easy to use at home. They're, they're quiet, easy to charge, and have ready at any time. I encourage you to look after your body. Honestly, it's the only thing you get to keep for all of your life. All these Hyperice products are just simply brilliant. Get 10% off all Hyperice products using the exclusive Greg Bennett Show code, GREG21, at checkout. Go to hyperice.com, that's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E dot com and use code GREG21 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by my longtime partner, an amazing company and brilliant product, Athletic Greens. I'm using Athletic Greens every day. Great taste, so quick and ready to go. Athletic Greens is a delicious blend of 75 superfoods and vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and a greens blend and more to support gut health, energy, and immunity and stress. I've also been doubling down on Athletic Greens Vitamin D, a huge portion of the population of Vitamin D deficient, myself included. And right now, Athletic Greens will give you a year's supply of Vitamin D for free and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Do yourself a favor and sign up. It makes a great gift for a family member or a friend. So sign up now and get a free year of supply of Vitamin D 
and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. This episode is brought to you by Form. In my opinion, Form Smart Swim Goggles are the biggest thing to hit the swimming world. With Form Smart Swim Goggles, you can see all your key metrics while you're swimming, distance, your pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. The swim data is displayed on the goggle lens and you can customize the display to see the key metrics that you want to see. I couldn't believe it when I first tried them. They fit like normal, comfortable goggles and the display is there, but it's not in the way. I consciously look at the lens to see my stroke rate and my pace and my heart rate and distance. If you're a pool swimmer or an open water swimmer, I encourage you to check these goggles out. Please go to formswim.com forward slash Greg. Again, that is formswim.com forward slash Greg and get $15 off the Form Smart Swim Goggles at checkout or use code Greg2021 at checkout. All right, today I'm sitting with my neighbor here in Boulder, Colorado, a remarkable man who by all accounts is the father of the modern running boom. His Olympic marathon gold in 1972 is generally regarded as the launch of this running movement. He followed this gold medal performance four years later at the Montreal Olympics with a silver medal behind an unknown East German who was later documented to be part of the nation's doping system. Throughout the 1970s, he won a multitude of US national championships over the 5K, 10K and the marathon distances, and he won the Fukuoka International Marathon Championships on four occasions. But he's more than a runner. He was instrumental in helping athletes make a living from what was at the time mostly amateur. And from 2000 to 2003, he was the chairman of the United States Anti-Doping Agency, a body that he helped to establish. It's a tremendous honor and privilege to just have him on the show. So welcome. And thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Frank Shorter, how are you, mate? Oh, I'm great. I'm great, Greg. Uh, thanks for yeah, making fun. the long walk up. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, my God, it must have been 150 meters. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I have wanted you on this show for so, so long. And it's it's one of those things that I know that you, you're in high demand, you, you speak very well, and a lot of people want a piece of Frank Shorter. But the other day, we were walking past with the kids, and you were sitting on the deck with your wife, Michelle, and, and we went up and we started chatting for about an hour. And I was just enthralled by your stories and everything. And I said, you know what? I have to ask and get him on the show. And you said, yes, I'd come on. And that really made my day. So thanks, mate, for being here. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, what I want to do is rewind the clock a little bit to start. Um, you know, I'm Australian, living in the US. Uh, for me, running in Australia was, was a, the, the names were often John Landy or Ron Clark or Derek Clayton, who was yeah. in your sort of era. And then later on, Robert DiCostello and Steve Montagetti and that kind of thing. The name Frank Shorter does go around the world, but it's certainly huge here in the US. It really is, like I said in the intro, it's it's part of the running culture and why we have running that's so big in the US. But let's rewind the clock and get to know you just a little bit better. Um, how did you find running? Well, I found it because I wanted to be a downhill ski racer. <laughs> and and I, I grew up in upstate New York and we had our ski areas, nothing like here. Um, you actually had to sharpen your edges because there was so much ice. If you didn't, all you did was slide down the hill sideways. So I read the ski magazines. And at the time, this was the 1950s and early 1960s, the best skiers in the world were the French. Mm. You know, I could recite to you the entire French team almost at the time, Guy Perriot, Charles Bonzon. Uh, and then there were two sisters, the Goitel sisters, who were the best runners in the world. So I read, well, what do they do? Well, it turned out, 
in the off season, they trained and they were <laughs> the first international team that I can think of, of that nature that trained in the off season yeah. and they ran and the Austrians who up until the French came along, um, dominated they went the way i put it is they went back to the farm and buck bales mm. you know all, all summer yeah. and so i said well i'll i'll start running as well and my i was probably 10 11 years old and my um, middle school was about 2.3 miles across town mm-hmm. i grew up in a small town called middletown near west point mm-hmm. in a very beautiful area they call the uh, hudson river valley and so i would run to school sometimes and run back. And I would do it not every day, but often a few days of the week. And uh, as an aside, if you look at pictures of me running in the Olympics, I carry my arms, the left arm in a certain way, and the right arm actually moves more because I carry my books in my left arm <laughs> uh, running to and from school. And, and so, um, and I was so convincing I convinced the principal at the time the rule was boys wear black tie shoes. And I convinced him to allow me to wear a pair of very low-cut, thin-soled sneakers Mm. because I was, quote, training, Mm. unquote. And then um, in gym class, I convinced the gym teacher to allow me to run laps around the field during gym class rather than gym class. What kid asked for that? <laughs> I, I, I know, you know, it, it was it was like, well, he'll get tired of this, and and so you know that that was it. Yeah. And um, and I did other sports. Mm. You know, I was a baseball player, and I was pretty good um, in little league. And so when it came time to go off uh, to a prep school. Um, because the families in my town, the middle-class families, that was one of the things people did. Mm. Their kids went to uh, prep schools in New England. So I went to a prep school called Northfield Mount Hermon. Mm. And it was a working school. It was founded by an evangelical um, named Dwight Moody. And uh, he had a work ethic. Mm. And every student there had to work 10 hours a week in the kitchen, waiting tables, you know, the grounds crew, the, uh, the the power plant. But the other part, and that was very good for me mm. because what that instilled in me was this idea, everyone's equal. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you come from Park Avenue in New York or the Mississippi Delta, you mm. work 10 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And, but in addition to that, uh, it happened to, at the time to have the perennial champions of New England prep schools in cross country. Oh, so I just happened on to this cross country team mm. And um, started to run, and first practice I ever ran, I finished second, and it turns out our team captain went on to win the New England Championships in cross country, and um, I finished fifth in that race, my first year of uh, running cross country, and so that was it. Wow. That's how I got into it. Well, wow. you're carrying the book thing. I've heard that before with Haley Gabriel-Selesi, you know, the great Ethiopian runner sure. in the in the 90s there. And I think he had a similar kind of story that he would run, I can't remember how many miles it was, but he had a similar kind of arm carriage from carrying the books. Yeah, so, uh, that's, yeah. And and you do. And, and you know, it. and one shoulder is a little lower yeah, because the, yeah. the books are in the shoulder. Yeah, and so, um, and to just sort of continue with the story, the, the other part of it is, you know, in these prep schools, this one was called Mount Hermon, Northfield mm. Mount Hermon. You know, the idea is to academically do well enough to get into as good a university or Mm. college as you can. 
And so I found that as I was um, pursuing the academic side of being there, the the running really became a stress relief for me. Mm. It, in, in a way, it was almost my reward mm. for working hard. If I really studied hard and worked hard, I could go out and run in the afternoon. And I carried that um, feeling on to Yale because mm. I ran well enough there um, at North Hill Mount Hermon my senior year. Uh, I finished, I won every cross country race I ran, including the league championships. And I set a course record every time I ran Wow! on every course, wow. not every, not, not on my own course, but every other course I ran. So, you know, in those terms, that sort of is at least one thing that people will notice when they're looking at your file and seeing, so, seeing what your board scores are. And, and so I got to Yale and I was a pre-med and I've, I just, um, ran for the same reasons. Mm. I ran because I loved it. I found I loved the motion. Mm. That dates back to when I first started to run to and from school. I just, even now, and I, and I realized, <laughs> hope these aren't, these asides are okay. I also found out, you know, once I started to get injured and every once in a while I have to, to walk, I'm a terrible walker. <laughs> I am slow. You and me both. Everybody <laughs> passes me when I walk. But I'm good when I'm running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Isn't it funny like that? I, I'm the same. I'm a terrible walker. I, I can't I, walk But fast. you've never practiced it. If you think about it, yeah. how many miles you ran <laughs> right. compared to how many miles you've walked, yeah. you've practiced right. one and right. not the other. Right, So, yeah. but, I, but again, I just love the motion. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I tell young kids now. Yeah. My advice when people, and this gets on to what you're, we'll, we'll cover this later, yeah. is that you got to love it. Yes, you got to love it. And, but we'll, we'll get but more But it's the ultimate that. dance, isn't it? I, I find running movement. I had a running coach, uh, Rob Higley, who I've talked about on this show before. We called him the guru. And just he loved running and he loved the motion of running. And that's how I grew up. And it was that we weren't trying to do as many miles as we could to be a world champion right away or anything like that. It was just the pure love of movement. And I think there is that. When you have that and you find it and there's that balance and there's a timing and rhythm, it really is a beautiful feeling. And, you know, that can play into recovery mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I found when I would run just for the joy of running, mm. I would get to a certain point and I go, okay, that's enough. Mm. I didn't say, oh, well, I need to run two or three miles farther. Mm. And it's something I carried over into my recovery days when I was training really, really hard. Mm. I would, on my recovery days, I never timed it and I ran to the point and I would have roots that I would run and that would be enough. See, that's the difference between a great champion though too. I, I look at now the way I run now, you know, as I approach 50 is kind of go, oh, I go out the door and I run. I'm like, I'm tired, I'm going home, right? I wish I'd had that attitude a little bit more when I was a professional athlete, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm meant to run 32 kilometers or 20 miles today and it has to be at this pace and it has to be. The no, because hard means very, very hard mm -hmm. and easy means very easy. Mm, mm. And there should be a great gap between that. That's why I never time the easy days. And to get into, you know, with with um, the group training, mm. and this I think applies whether you're riding a bike or, mm -hmm. or or running. Our groups, all the groups I've ever been with, and and the the big one was uh, the Florida Track Club when I was down there in the '70s. And then I would run with all the guys in Oregon. I mm. was kind of an adopted duck. And then when I got to Colorado and we had our running club here, we always went at the pace that the slowest in our group wanted to go that day. Mm. And it was not an announcement. It was just how it worked out. Mm. So you never, 
And the other thing we never had in our group was the one step ahead looking back person. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's say, everybody's shaking, nodding their heads going, yeah, I got that person in <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, again, there's, there's not, you know, again, yeah. it's, it pretty, is pretty much the same. And this is getting on to some mm. of your later questions. But, you know, that's how I started running. And it and it started to evolve in mm. in that fashion. Was there a moment in time, or was there a one performance that kind of, you kind of thought, "Hey, I'm actually pretty good at this," you know? Um, yeah, that it, it was, it was my yeah. senior year. Yeah, um, and your senior year, if you've done it right, so that's year twelve for for those that don't know yeah, American year, system. Year 12, but, yeah, year twelve. I was I was a, a, a yeah. senior at Yale. Yeah. Oh, uh, Yale. So university. Yeah, I was so, senior at Yale yeah, University. Yeah, yeah. And I was probably uh, 20, had not, no, I just turned 21. Mm. And I ran the national indoor championships. And um, I had started to not, my course load was not as heavy. Mm-hmm. And so I had trained a little bit more, not much more. And I finished second in the indoor two mile nationally. And um, that was after. Uh, in cross country, the the first hint was I finished 19th in the national collegiate cross country that fall of 1968. I was 19th, um, and, and again I'll never forget. I had never I hadn't run 10 kilometers ever, and we'd only our cross country races were five miles, mm. and um, at five miles, and it was on Van Cortlandt Park in New York where all the cross country major meets are held in mm. that area. New York, New Jersey. Beautiful park. They come in to run on Van Cortland. At five miles, I was seventh. (laughs) (laughs) That last mile. (laughs) I learned. And, and, but the point is I was an all American. Yeah. Because they took the top 20 Ah, as an all American. So there was a hint. And then indoors, I finished second um, to a guy named Ole Olison, uh, who was from Southern Cal. And, what was interesting about him was he was trained, and there's there's something that comes into play here, interval training. Mm. This is sort of a background for interval training. He wasn't trained by the Southern Cal coach. He was trained by Igloy, mm. who had come over from Hungary, and he was the coach, and the Hungarians in 1956 mm, had, had all yeah. come over because of the uprising, yeah. and they went to California, and he brought interval training over. And they held the world records at that time for 5,000 meters, 1,500 too, yeah. I think. Yeah. So the interval training theory, so this guy who finished ahead of me, just I found out later, was coached by Igloy. And then... Um, so up until that point, you guys would just go run tempo runs? Or, well, no, or, we did intervals. You did do intervals. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and my coach at Yale had... had um, and so for me, it was just reinforcement. And yeah. I think that's what was making me better because I also found out I love doing interval training yeah. because... It, it, it allows you to dole out your energy and gain a sense of recovery that you, it's, it, um, it, in a way, no one ever looked at it the way I think I kind of did was, it was also in a way almost like a, a recovery run condensed. In other words, you're playing around with your anaerobic threshold. Mm. And in a recovery run, you're going out at a certain pace, and then you're going a little too fast, so you slow down a little mm, bit, mm. but you're just wandering over. and It under, allows you to measure measure, measure the effort. But I better. think you can also do that in interval training, you know, through the speed. Mm-hmm. You get to a certain speed, and then you can gauge your fitness by recovery. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is making no, sense. No, it does. It does make sense, yeah, yes. And, and, and so I developed an ability to, and, and the repeats is, I think, also important. In interval training, you should come across certain workouts that you do that you're really good at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, in a way, I don't believe in working on my weaknesses <sighs> after a certain level. Music to my ears, Frank. It, it, it's, <laughs> you, you work on your strengths. Yes. Yeah. And my strength was always recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I love the interval training. And actually, I was my own coach from the middle of my junior year in, in university at Yale on. Wow. So I started to play around with the interval training that I'd learned. Mm. And, and so um, that's, it, it, again, that's why it was an aside about Olison that, that it, it, it turns out it was the right thing. In yeah. retrospect, I was doing the right thing. Yeah. And so spring break of my senior year at Yale, I had finished your, uh, my um, senior thesis. In your major, I was a psychology pre-med major, you have to write a thesis in your major. And it's due at the end of the year. Well, I was given my nature. I was, I was done by spring break. <laughs> And so I had the rest of the year, yeah. um, I had one final and had some other classes and my physics class, I mean, my, my discussion group, we got done early. So we learned Fortran programming. I mean, you know, it was, it, it was one of those fun times, but I started to run twice a day, ah. some days of the week. Yeah. And so, uh, and the, the paradigm shift occurred, I think at that point is that the running went from what I did for stress relief to be my primary focus. Mm. And the academics became the relief and release from the running. Interesting. Yeah. And, and so I went to the NCAA collegiate championships, my senior year, Tom black track, Knoxville, Tennessee. And I won the six mile. It was six miles at the time. Uh, and the next day, um, I finished second to the same guy, Ole Olson, in the three mile the next wow, day. Wow. And again, to give you the story of how you do this, I had never run 10,000 or six miles on the track. Yeah. So 10 days before the race, I was in Middletown. My family was there because graduation. And I went out to the local center track with uh, my 10 year old sister. And I gave her a stopwatch and she timed me and I ran. 30 minutes flat on the cinders in a time trial for six miles. Wow. <laughs> and, and so I said, yeah, I think I, I, think I can do it. Yeah. So that's um, what happened. That was your training. 10 days out, do we do uh, yeah, the 10K? Yeah, I, I always just to see. Oh, specific training, yeah. Yeah, yeah just yeah. to see. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, <laughs> and, and after that, I went to the national championships and finished high enough up in the um, 10,000. Uh, I was fourth. And uh, coincidentally, if you want to talk about Steve Prefontaine later, yeah. that was his first race, and he finished fourth in his race, 5,000. And as a result of that, we both went to Europe together on the U.S. team because people ahead of us didn't go. So that's where we started to train together. And again, another aside, I trained like a 5,000-meter runner. Yeah, I yeah. didn't train like a marathon runner. No, I yeah. trained to run 5,000 on the track. Well, there's something to that. I want to talk about that a yeah, bit later. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the, the other person who we became friends with who went overseas was Kenny Moore, mm. 
who ended up finishing fourth in the Munich Marathon. So we, in another well, three, three Americans in the top ten of Munich. I, I, I yeah, at, yeah. It's incredible running times. Right, right. And yeah. Jack Batchelor, who yeah. was ninth mm. in Munich, won that race. Mm. Gotcha. And and so um, <laughs> after the race, again, it's how the, these stories and how you make friends in your in your sport. Uh, immediately, I'm one of those people. I just sort of start to jog down with somebody, mm-hmm. and so. So Kenny and I are jogging down, and he, and he says, geez, it's really good. I, I, I finished and qualified, you know, so I can go overseas. And he passed me in the last straightaway. Mm-hmm. And, 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 um, and he said, yeah, yeah, he was on the Army track team. And if he hadn't gone overseas that summer, he was going to Vietnam. Get out. Wow. And so my he was aunt, literally running for his life. Yeah. I and, mean. And, and my answer, to, and, and what I said in response was, well, why didn't you tell me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I would have eased up even earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, wow. and so, you know, that's and and went overseas and just started to And was that was that moment, that first trip overseas, is that kind of when you were like, okay, I want to do this with my life? Is yeah, this something? Well, this, not your or, life, because but, at that time amateurs you you had yeah, one, you had one Olympic cycle. Right, right. Is that and, how you looked at it? And you weren't it? earning money. Yeah. At least at that time. And yeah. even at that time, the uh our federation at um, AAU Track and Field was taking our appearance money from the track meets we would have to run in as a member of the U.S. team. And they would take the... They would take the appearance money, whereas we found out, and that was when Steve Prefontaine and I really said, okay, we're doing something here. About a year later, we were at a race, and <laughs> one of the Italian hurdlers, who was a buddy of ours, came up and said, well, let's go get our money and go out and have some fun. And we said, what money? Wow. <laughs> so that's that's kind of how it happened. So your expectation mm. wasn't that you were going to earn a living doing this. Mm. It was really part of, you know, again, when you talk about it, I think we were all three of us, Kenny and I and, and Steve Pre, were, were just, you, you get on an upward curve. You just want to see if you can get better and better. Yeah, you want to yeah. see how good you can yeah. get. Yeah, of course, which and, is and, what it should be about. I mean, you want to start there and obviously... Uh, from my side, I was fortunate probably from people like you that came before us that we were able to sort of make a living pretty early on. Sure. Um, and we, but it still has to come from the right place yeah, that you, you want to improve and you, you want to be better. You're, you're yeah. not in it to earn the money. No, 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 no. no. Um, no. Um, and in fact, again, as another aside, I needed to maintain, once I came back from Europe and started to get better and better, mm. uh, I couldn't just run. So I, uh, again, I told you about the paradigm shift. I had uh, dropped out of law, um, medical school to, to go to Europe and run mm. and, and try to see how good I could get. But I, I said, I have to do something. So I went back to law school. Yeah. I, was, I went to law school full time while I was training for Munich. And that was in Florida. Yeah, that was yeah. in Florida. Yeah. So I was there and I was living in a windowless bunker room behind the equipment room at the Florida track in my room. It was a guy named John Parker who has written some very good books, mm-hmm. one called Once a Runner mm-hmm. um, and others. Um, he was a law student. He was a very bright guy. He graduated Florida in three years, was in the law school, but he used to write a column for the paper. So we're, we're in this windowless bunker uh, <laughs> barbecuing in the, on the lanai. And I think watching. that's illegal these days, isn't it? you got to have a window in every room. <laughs> Yeah, and and so and the law school was two hundred yards across mm. a forest. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, I'll t- take the LSAT, and I went to law school. Wow. So I would, um, and so, but but again, 
the, it, it was this, okay, let's see. And you also have to get into very good circumstances, and, and you have to be very thankful. There was a man named Jimmy Carnes who was the Florida track coach, but he wasn't really a coach. He was an administrator. And he had this Florida track club, which he really didn't need to have or support because he was the coach at Florida. Mm-hmm. But he loved track and field. He was in North Carolina, and and he, he was a good old boy, Southern guy. Mm. But he loved track and field, and so he found out ways to get local um, support for our track club. And the main way was during the building boom down there, he found contractors who would have condominiums that weren't being rented, and so we would get a condominium to stay in. That's the sort ah, of ah, yeah. And then what you also did at the time was. Uh, and then I'll get off this, was you would get invited to races and you had a certain per diem, the race could pay you. It was like $75 a day. And uh, you'd get a plane ticket, but you could cash in those plane tickets and go student standby and all yeah, sorts yeah, of other yeah. things. Yeah, 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 make your money that way. So, and that's how we made our money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the first first race I ever ran from the Florida Track Club, Jack Batchelor had gotten an invitation to the Drake Relays. And so we split his ticket and we both went. That's brilliant. And yeah. we tied in the six mile. Are you tied in the six mile? Yeah. It's so, not the yeah. first time. I, doing this homework, I saw there was another tie you had with the Bill Rogers, who was also quite you know oh, famous yeah. in the 70s there, and uh, the 10-miler the that you guys tied in there. And, and I saw a post-race interview, on, and Bill had said to you, hey, Frank, do you want to tie? And you're standing there going, did you regret that tie? It just seemed to me when I watched that post-race interview that you were like, oh, I should have raced this guy to the line. Was it, well, was it that? It was, it, it wasn't that important. No, no, no. And, no. and the other thing was, and we did another, we were going to tie again in the Olympic trials. Mm. So we had been in that, I think that was after 76 that we did this. Lynchburg. Mm-hmm. It was in that, Lynchburg, that was it, Virginia. yes, yes. And, and we were going to tie in the marathon trial in 76. And we, we went out in 104. Nobody was with us. We got within half a mile of the stadium, and he started to cramp. And um, I said, you want me to slow down? And he said, no, 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 you, mm. you go on. Mm. So I, I, I think that's a good way to, to answer the mm. question. The point was, I was m- mad because we had tied. Mm. And at the time... They couldn't have a tie. Well, why not have a tie? Mm. You know, and so it was more that that sort of hate. Yeah. We wanted to tie. Yeah. Well, they gave you guys the same time, but they gave him the win for some yeah. reason. And, <laughs> I don't know. and that was fine. It wasn't. Yeah, but you were the you were the Olympic gold medalist at the time. But and, the, uh, yeah, but the other yeah, but the other thing was, Bill and I, um, in the nineteen seventies, pretty yeah. much at any point in time were. You guys were it. Either one of us yeah. was the number one ranked marathoner. Yeah, it's amazing. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, let's go straight to Munich 1972 okay, sure. because there's so much in Munich 1972 and, and your race win there. It's Firstly, a lot of people know about Munich and the terrorist attack. Right. You were right there. I was right there. And you still had your marathon to compete. You'd done your 10K? Had you finished right. the 10K? Uh, two 10Ks. We two had King, trial the, the trial final. and then you finished fifth in the final. Right. And then take us through that whole experience. Well, and how did you? Get, and I guess add on to that. How did you get your head around it and then still perform for the marathon? Well, yeah. Well, th- this has to do with our. We had started to kind of defy um, the federation 
and we were supposed to get passes for our significant others to get into the Olympic Village. Mm -hmm. And um, they had not been forthcoming. So I looked at the little pamphlet that you get, little and um, a little carrying case, and you know, it was a little guide, and it had an example of an athlete's pass. Well, on another page, they had an example of the back of the athlete's pass. And it was the same size mm. as the athlete's pass. Mm. And I looked at that and I said, give me an exacto knife and some double-edged sticky tape and <laughs> I'm going to do this. <laughs> and we also got our significant others to go woo the guys in the credential center outside taking Polaroid pictures of the athletes. <laughs> so we got the Polaroid pictures and forged our passes. Wow. So on one of these forged passes, Dave Waddle, mm -hmm. who turned out to be the 800-meter gold medalist, mm -hmm. uh, was my roommate. And in our rooming complex, Kenny was there, Steve was there, um, a guy named Mike Manley, steeplechaser, a lot of Oregon guys, and Dave and I, who had our own side room, well, he was newly married, so he brought his new bride into our room in the Olympic Village, and I went out and slept on the balcony. Outside. You're a good man. Outside. Before outside. your Olympic marathon, you're sleeping outside. I love yeah, that. Yeah, because there was an overhang. You're a good man. And so I, I, dragged, I dragged my mattress out there, yeah. and, um, you know, again, it's that we're all in this together. And the only thing I didn't like was the fact he'd already won his gold medal and it's sitting up there on, on, on the dresser in our room and I have to wait 10 days. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But so I was sleeping on the balcony and <laughs> at four in the morning, I heard the shots. And I thought to myself, that's not a door slamming. I've been out here for days. And, that, and I said, Somebody, somebody's been shooting a gun. And I woke up the next morning. I'll never forget it. And usually you hear birds, mm. sounds. There'd be noise from down below. We were like on the fifth floor of, of the building and the, and the Olympic Village walkways were down below and you'd hear that. Mm. No sound. I woke up, there was nobody walking around doing anything. The way I always described it was it's like the jungle when there's a predator. Mm. That there's no noise. And... So we knew something was wrong. And so we turned on the little TV we had in there, and it turns out most people aren't aware that Steve Prefontaine's mother was German. Mm -hmm. And German may have been his first language. So he was fluent in German. And so we immediately saw on the television that what had taken place. So we just sat around for a while, but then, you know, I think this... Attitude, and I think uh, athletes have it. You mm. know, good athletes have it. Is you do what you can do, mm -hmm. and what we could do was try to go about as much of our normal daily routine as we could, including training. Mm. And so, you know, we would go up to the you know cafeteria and get food, and and we would go out. Uh, we decided to go out and take a run and train mm. that morning. And the back of the Olympic Village had one gate, and it had some guards there at the gate, and they would allow athletes in and out to run in the Olympic Park. Even while this was all going on? No. No. 
The gate was closed. <laughs> right, we right. got there, looked yeah. at them, climbed the fence. And they had guns. <laughs> so they they were looking at us, started trying to say, well, what, what do we do? So we said hi, because we knew these guys. Yeah, We've been there long yeah, enough. Yeah. So we went out and took our run, came back, climbed the fence, went. And so okay. that's what we did. Yeah. So every day we went out and... Yeah. The next day and climbed the fence. Were the other athletes in the village doing the same? Or? I don't know. We no, did. no, you just I did. don't know. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. And and so we we spent the day that night, and we would all stand out on the balcony. Uh, there was another balcony in our rooming complex, mm-hmm. and we would all stand out on that and just sort of stare over because the Israeli quarters were across the grounds and we could see the back of their building so you could see a little bit what was going on not only we see that you know the fame i hope you know the famous photograph yes with the stocking over his head yeah 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 we saw that guy wow and and we were so naive that he could have taken that of course gun and just gone and but he didn't and we were standing there and in the early evening we remember the helicopters that came in to take them all out to the airport flew right over our head Landed on oh the other goodness. side of the building. And a few minutes later, they all came up and uh, went over our heads. And uh, I turned to Kenny and I said, Kenny, I don't think this is over. I don't, I, I, I don't have a good feeling about this. And um, we went to bed and woke up and found out they'd all been killed at the airport. Mm. I think there was nine... <sighs> Was it in that yeah. helicopter crash and two, two in the village or something? Yeah, I two at the door. And the guy at the door who was shot first when they came through was an American on the weightlifting team. Was he really? Yeah, he was an American on the Israeli weightlifting Yeah. A quick mini break to remind you of the show's incredible partners. You can get 10% off all Hyperice products using the exclusive Greg Bennett Show discount code GREG21 at checkout. Go to hyperice.com and use code GREG21. A quick reminder to do yourself a favor and sign up to Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens also makes a great gift for any family member or friend. So sign up now and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. If you want to see all your key metrics like pace, distance, stroke rate and heart rate while you swim, you need the Form Smart Swim Goggles. Go to formswim.com forward slash Greg. That's formswim.com forward slash Greg and get $15 off or you can use code GREG2021 at checkout. A hell of an experience to have when, you, when you're already at the games, when you're in a heightened arousal state already as athletes and you, um, and it's that ability, I guess, moving on to the race yeah to almost compartmentalize well we did to to do that because we went to the ceremony and they announced that they were going to be delayed a game and on the way back um did you think you were going to get to race or did you think that was it next day we didn't know until Mm. well i want to go our response as a group and we had and people from other teams uh were coming over um 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 there was a guy named Hailu Eba who went to Oregon State. He was from Ethiopia, and he was on their team. Mm-hmm. He came over. It was like people would gather. Mm-hmm. Almost brought you closer. Yeah, yeah. And, and we were up there, and we would um, just talk about it as it happened. And um, 
once the helicopters went over, the discussion was, well, it's over. Mm. We're going home. Mm. You know, nothing is worth human life. Mm-hmm. And no one, no one said, oh, well, this is ruining my Olympics. Mm. <laughs> you know? No, no, you couldn't have no. a selfish mindset no. at that oh, point. No, 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 no. 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 Yeah. And so we went to the memorial the next day thinking, it's probably gone. Wow. And it was announced they were going to go on. So on the way back, I, and this has to do with compartmentalizing, again, I turned to Kenny. We would hang out together, run together. And I said, Kenny, um, I'm not going to think about it because the only place the terrorists can do anything more mm. here because of all the security now is out on the marathon course. Well, and, well. and I said, I am not going to think about it because if they do, if I do, they win. And I ran the entire race, never thought about it. I didn't think about it warming up. I didn't think about it when I got up that morning. I didn't think about it. That's a real strength. Yeah. Yeah. You, but it is. It's a strength that you have because there's a lot of people that wouldn't be able to, like you just said, I mean, it's kind of chilling thought when you actually think about it. Well, hang on. The only other place that if they want to have another go around is out on the marathon course, sure. which is open. And, yeah. and you, so, you, you put that aside. Right. It's absolutely incredible. I. Let's move on to the actual oh, the race. race? Uh, yeah. Um, you you won by a, a decent chunk. How two, how did two the two minutes? Yeah. How did I mean that doesn't happen? In, you know, very rarely in a, in a championship marathon that sort of a distance. You have people like Derek Derek Clayton, who I mentioned before, who was I think the world record holder at the time. Was he? A oh yeah, he 208 was, Australian. Uh, he'd, he'd run. Yeah, I think two oh eight thirty four or something. Yeah, like. yeah. And Ron Hill, who was another favorite, yes. won Boston in two ten thirty. Mm-hmm. Which Boston is before. not. It's not a fast race. No, it's not. Uh, and and so they were the the favorites. But I think, um, I had developed, and when you talked about the Fukuoka Marathon, it's coming up on its 75th year. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen anymore. Postponed again. But it really was the world championships. Yeah, yeah. Because the Soviet bloc countries never came out except for the Olympics, except Fukuoka Fukuoka. every year. Yeah. So I learned there in my first race to be a front runner. Mm. So I determined um, after that and then with the Olympic trials in the Pan Am Games in 71 and then by 72... I was a front runner. Mm-hmm. And I also trained to surge and I trained like a 5,000 meter runner. So um, I actually um, trained surge, surges, for example, I would run 800 meters running um, 60, 64, 64, 60. Mm-hmm. I, and I would surge, recover at as quick a pace as I could. Uh, you know, and then and do it again, and do, do it, it again. again. Yeah, and it's what the it Kenyans again. became famous for later on, right. much later. Yeah, all... I, I think I was the first yeah. to do that. Yeah, and my feeling truly was because I'd run so well in the ten thousand. I ran, you know, twenty seven fifty one, which was the American record. It's amazing. And I broke the American record in the semifinal. That I ran twenty seven fifty eight, and then on, on Friday, and then on Monday, I ran twenty seven fifty one. So I said, I don't think these guys have 10,000 meters. They can't go that fast, yeah. yeah. And so I don't, and, and it wasn't arrogance, I don't think. I said, you know, if I throw a 430 mile in the middle of this race, I'm not sure any of these guys have run a 430 mile arrogance. recently. That, that's self-belief. It's not arrogance. It's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you know, I, yeah, I said, yeah. but it's the way I run well. Yeah. And I run well from the front. And I'd also, in Munich, 
had run every part of that course. We had a subway pass. I would go out to a certain point on the marathon course and run it like 10 kilometers mm-hmm. on the course. So I had run all of that course. I love that you had a subway pass, times. by the way. That, that, yeah, that wouldn't yeah, happen these days. Go, it's yeah, all, I, know. I, I, <laughs> I love just, that. I would just go out and, <laughs> yeah. and, and do it. Yeah. And I planned to make a surge because my first Fukuoka race in um, 1971, I had done this at about 15 miles. And the defending champion, a guy named Akio Sami, who had won the year before, couldn't go with me. And I got a lead. I got about a 30-second lead, which I maintained to the finish line. Mm. <laughs> he was oh, that's, 30 seconds. That's hard, though, isn't it? When you get the yeah, time it's still 30 seconds. But the, but the point was <laughs> yeah. he couldn't catch me. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he was the best. Yeah. He was the best guy mm. at that time. And, and so I decided to do the same thing in the marathon early. So we were um, running at nine miles, um, in um, one of the um, palace grounds, it would somehow serpentine through um, certain palace areas. And we came to um, about a 140-degree turn, not 180, but about a 140-degree turn where the lead pack that had been running along at about, you know, 503, 504, 505. Clipping along. Yeah, clipping along. And everyone slowed down for this corner. And I went wide and didn't slow down, and I took off, and I estimate I ran about 4.33 for the next mile. So that's about 2.50k pace. I'll just translate because we have a few yeah, yeah. non-metric people, but two, yeah, yeah, probably 2.50k pace. Yeah. And then from 9 to 18, I think I averaged 4.44 Wow. for that seven miles. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. eight miles. Yeah, yeah. So holding yeah. under 30 minutes for 10k type pace. For yeah. That's a tough way to run because – the, the problem with front running, and I was a bit of the same, I, I, I had to get out in front. The problem with front running is uh, you know they're getting all the time splits behind you, right? You very rarely get as many time splits when you're out front. And you know it's this kind of where are they, you know, mentality. And there's – God does interesting things. <laughs> the course was such, since I had run it, there were many, many turns. Mm, so and you had I a chance real- to look And up. I realized I could get out of sight – Mm. very quickly. And so that became a goal. There were certain points in the race where uh, one of the assistant coaches at Florida yeah. uh, had gotten a bicycle and was riding around. I didn't even know he was there. And um, he would tell me yeah. how far ahead I was. Oh, and so the first time it was about a minute. And then I'll never forget in the English garden, he was top of a bridge and uh, we're crossing over a road and he was, had his bike uh, with him on the top of the bridge, and he said, I was a minute and a half. Wow. So this was just about 20 miles. Six miles to go, 10 kilometers. And so I started to do the math. Mm. How much per mile yeah, faster yeah, yeah. than I'm running? You become a mathematician, don't you? You become a mathematician. Right. <laughs> yeah, a minute and a half over, si- and a half yeah. over six miles yeah. is 25 seconds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they would have to run, and if I could hold close to five-minute pace, yep. they're they not going to run 435. No, Exactly. Yeah. And then every step you take, that math changes, right? Yep. So, yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and so I knew, I didn't know that the, the lead was uh, uh, extending. But here, I'll, I'll even anticipate your next question. You know, when, when people say, well, you know, do you keep going hard? That's the old coach's 
saying you run hard through the finish line. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you run scared until you cross that finish line. You never take it. You never assume <laughs> you're winning until you're across no. the finish line. Yeah. So I was outside the, um, I got to outside the stadium uh, tunnel, which was probably, what, 600 yards in the finish because it's 200 yards mm. to the finish line through the tunnel and down the straightaway and then another 400 Lap. Uh, yeah. meters around. And I got outside and at that time, the uh, marathon was not on closing ceremonies day. It was on the last day of track and field. Okay. Yeah. And so I was just about to go into the tunnel, and I heard this roar from inside. And I thought, since it was track and field, and it's sort of a joke about the, you know, some of these prima donna <laughs> field event people. I was going to say field events. <laughs> field event people, you know, high jump and, and pole vault, uh, you know, t- are taking their time. Yeah. And somebody made a hike. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, it was taking a lot longer than they thought it was going to, and yeah. somebody made a hike, yeah. and everybody cheered. Yeah. So I ran down the tunnel, and I ran out onto the track, and it was silent. Nothing. <laughs> You're like, hang on. And I thought, <laughs> and it's really strange what goes through your mind at those times. My thought was, because Americans at that time were not the distance runners. We mm-hmm. were the sprinters. So the thought that went through my mind was, Geez, I'm an American, but give me a break. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, just just because I'm not supposed to be here. Wow, what um, a feeling that you you're kind of anticipating one thing and it's completely the oh, other. Oh yeah. yeah, but you know, again, I can I can say now. Um, I'll, I'll save this for later. So I go down, and it turns out that this high school kid uh, who had had a buddy who had been driving a golf cart servicing the pop stands, uh, you know, the refreshment mm-hmm. stands for the entire track and field venue time period and had gotten used to being around all the guards. So the guards recognized this kid driving this golf cart. So his buddy got on the back. Oh. And this, this is kid, right off five days after a terrorist attack. Right. This is still right. the security we're talking about. security on a golf wow. cart. <laughs> on the back of a golf cart, so this kid had his, you know, number and... Written on. He, he looked like off. an athlete. He looked like an athlete. Yeah, he, he, well, if, if he really knew, he didn't look like a marathon runner, but he no. looked like an athlete. Yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't skinny enough to be no, a marathon no, no. runner. And, and so, so he goes out and his, his timing was perfect yeah. because it turns out he hit the track, and I've, I've timed this, 48 seconds before I did. So that when... He was 48 seconds around on the track. He was just about at the 200-meter mark. Mm. I came in at the 100-meter mark, turned right, and he was out of my sight because he was off my left shoulder So you didn't even know what was going on. No. So I'm running down, and I go through the finish line, and I start on my last lap, and people started to whistle. And in Europe, whistling's booing. Yeah. You know, so booing. And you're like, what? Yeah. And I oh, got man. halfway down the final, uh, uh, the backstretch, and this American voice comes out and says, Don't worry, Frank. And I thought to myself, Why should I worry? I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> By two minutes. <laughs> I didn't know it was that at that yeah, point, but yeah, there was no yeah. one on the track yeah, yet yeah, yeah. that I could see. You know, I was halfway down the straightaway, no one had come on the track yet. And so, and then when I started around the last turn, just before I, 
got into the last straightaway, they stopped, he ran to the finish line and they took him off. So I run, I run through the finish line and there's still, you know, not much cheering or anything. There's sort of chaos. And I got through and I started to sort of take my shoes off. Um, actually, to be truthful, I taped my feet and it was poor pre-wrap and all my blisters are broken and I was pulling off skin. Oh, geez. Oh, so I'm sitting on the track pulling my tape off and then somebody comes over to me and says, what do you think of that guy? And so I knew, I knew right away what had happened. Eh, eh. And, you know, it turned, turned out that, and, all, and what I want to say about that is, you know, in retrospect, people who saw it were incensed. You know, and for years people would just well, say, listen to the commentators. So if you listen to the American commentators, they're just ah. American. Well, I'd taken a course, two courses from Eric Siegel in uh, college. Okay, he knew what I looked like. Yeah, yeah. And he was he and his buddies, his entourage, because yeah. he was famous for Love Story and all that. They would come out to the Yale indoor track and and just run and run and run around the last lane in the indoor track, and we thought they were nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, But he was a true, if he could have been a marathon runner. That's what he loved. That's what he loved. Yeah, yeah. Again, you talk about loving yeah. the doing, it, it's what he So he's loved. commentating this just going. He's going, God, that never happens. It's a, yeah, so he's going, it's, it's a fake, Frank. You it's know, a fake, Steve, Frank. Yeah. He's talking to me. <laughs> so, but what I know, I know that I didn't run for that roar. Mm. You know, I can know because it's never really bothered me. It's so pure. Yeah. It, it, it was about the performance. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, because when I crossed the finish line, my first thought was I did it right. Mm-hmm. I, it wasn't, oh, I won the gold medal. Now everything's going to happen. It was did it right. I had the plan. I initiated, I was the first to go. Executed it. I executed it, mm. and it worked. Isn't it the best feeling in the world? Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't matter how fast you go. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's that it worked. And so, well, here's an interesting bit of trivia, which I'm sure you know, but I'll, I'll share it with, with the guests. So there's been three American marathon winners at the Olympics, 1904, 1908, and yourself, 1972, and I think not, we can call them 1976. But, um, but none of you have entered the stadium first. Even though the three of you have won, none of you have entered first. I, I'm sure you know this. So Thomas Hicks in 1904 was beaten by into the stadium by a guy by the name Fred Lortz who had jumped into a car and then had two doses of strychnine and was first across the line and then was DQ'd once they feel like Once they found out. And, and then the other, Jimmy Johnny Hayes in, in 1908, uh, was beaten in the stadium by... Uh, Durando Pietri from Italy, right. who, uh, who basically was the best marathoner at the time, but was so dehydrated, collapsed four times and uh, was carried across the line. Right. And the Americans had to protest. And, and that's how. So all three of you yeah. have a story. And I think that is fascinating in its own story. I think it's and incredible. There's, and there's more to it in a way. Mm. Four years later, I'm in the Montreal Marathon. Mm. And there is this person running ahead of me. I don't know who it is. He's wearing a white singlet and never seen him before. It, it turns out that um, um, the year before, he had run 216. So he's now found eight minutes or something? Yeah. <laughs> and um, he was ahead of me, and I did the same plan in, in that race. I surged, mm. and he went with me. And at a certain point, he... Just pulled away. It was at 20 miles going through McGill. 
university grounds. I'll never forget. And then we got on the um, road to come back to the stadium, and I got to within 50 meters of it. And uh, again, the the aside, you triathletes, swimmers, you know when someone's performing and it's not we, we all do. normal. We all do. Yep. It's not mm-hmm. normal. Mm. And he turned around and saw me when I was about 50 meters and just took off. It's just, just like, oh. Yeah. And didn't get tired one bit. Yeah. 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 So I get outside the stadium and I'm in just about the same spot, <laughs> except this time I'm not in first. And I hear this roar and, and the thought that went through my head was, geez, I'm never going to hear this roar. <laughs> it's, 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 it's never gonna, it's never gonna happen. Uh, I timed it. He was 48 seconds ahead of me when he hit the track. No way. That's amazing, isn't it? So whatever happened about that? Because I know he was a part of the whole scandal. Did yeah, they strip him yeah. of the gold? Have you uh, been no, awarded they, that they or no? No, no. No. Well, it happened because um, the um, Honecker, who was the president of East Germany at the time, mm. had mandated the program. He said, we're going to have a drug a cheating program. Mm. And he put the Stasi, who were their secret police, in charge of the program. It would be as if our president said, okay, we're all going to cheat, and our FBI and CIA are going to oversee it. Wow. So the athletes had little... They had no choice. No choice, yeah. yeah. They, had, they had no choice. They yeah. had to, but it doesn't excuse anyone, but um, years later, um, when the um, wall went down, the records, because the... Germans, in particular East Germans, prided themselves in record-keeping. Mm. And fortunately for us, they hadn't destroyed any of their records. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the, the rumor was they, the Stasi, had the state-of-the-art Hewlett-Packard reel-to-reel computers that they used, and they thought they were better than our CIA. Yeah, okay, yeah, it, yeah. it was that arrogance yeah, yeah. Of, of record-keeping. Wow. And so I actually... Um, over the years have gotten the one one thing I've kept that I could have brought here to show you was a February of 1976 letter between two Stasi major generals who are charging in charge of the program and they're discussing where they're going to go in West Germany to get their drugs mm. and attached to this is a handwritten list of athletes each with a number by it, because they were, in essence, anecdotally keeping track of their athletes in order to cheat better. Wow. In other words, they were doing their own anecdotal testing on their athletes, and these each one had a number, and also, a lot of them are dead now. But um, did you have you ever have you ever spoken? Sorry to interrupt. Have you ever spoken to what was his name? Chapinski. Chapinski. Oh no, you've never never spoken to him again. And and did he ever do anything beyond that? Uh, Yeah, he won the next Olympics. Oh, he did win in eighty. Yes. Oh, okay. He won in eighty. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Yeah. I should have done that. No, that's no, no, that's okay. Yeah, I would rather forget too. (laughs) (laughs) What would it mean to you to to receive that gold medal now? Would it? I think again this gets back to what we talked about. Mm. You do what you can do, Mm -hmm. that over which you have control. Don't worry about Mm. what you can't do anything about. Mm. And at the time, Honecker um, was good buddies with Juan Antonio Samranch, 
And, and people forget that Juan Antonio Samaranch was Fra- Franco's last surviving cabinet member. Mm. He was a fascist. Mm. So you had a fascist and a communist buddies. Mm. And, and Samaranch actually gave Honecker the Order of Olympic Merit, which is the highest order. He also put the doctor, who it turns out was in charge of the East German drug program, on the Olympic Drug Committee. They have <laughs> parallel labs. Wow. They have parallel labs. At every event, at every Olympics. Wow, so they could just cover up everything they wanted. Yeah, and a, a side anecdote. Um, there was a, a, a decathlete, I think it was, Jür- was it Jürgen Hinsen? I think East German. In the 88 games, I was doing the commentary with Charlie Jones and Seoul. And after the first day, he's leading by a zillion. Mm. Hurdles, second day. Two false start rule. Gets in the blocks and the hurdles. False starts. So what? Go back, sit in the blocks, go off, gets in the blocks. False start. Bang. He's out. Mm. What goes through my head? Guess who got tested last night? (laughs) Because they test the winners. Only the medalists were tested. Uh, Okay. So he had to get out. he was tested in his lab. The night before. Oh, so he already knew the result. He knew, and he, be, and he, he better he get out. Resu- yeah, yeah. Why else would you twice false start? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so to get back to the story, mm. I didn't say anything for 22 years because I knew if I said anything, it would just be considered sour grapes. I know. And I saw what happened to Shirley Babishoff, who was favorite for, you know, gold medal in swimming. And the anecdotes there, there was one British swimmer lady who was favored for a gold medal, walked into the women's locker room, turned around, walked out because she thought she'd walked into the men's locker room, but it was the East German women around the corner talking. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and so I just stayed silent. You know, I just let people, you know, said nothing. But then when the chance came with uh, the Festina scandal in 19... 19- um, 98 in the Tour de France, where they caught a car coming back from Belgium. They had started to let tours, uh, uh, legs of the Tour de France go out outside. The front, yeah. And one coming back from Belgium, the French authorities caught one car. In one car, they found, you know, uh, all the drugs, including uh, a drug called perfluorocarbon, which was an artificial blood that was only available in clinical trials. So we all know that all those other 22 cars in the Tour de France, no, they were clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It was of only course. this one car. Of they course. just happened to find this one car. <laughs> and, and so the way, the, the real history of this is, and I'm glad to tell you this because you can edit this out and do it at another time, mm-hmm. but the way the sequence worked, there was a French... Minister of Health and Sport, a woman who said, I won't swear in French, but she said something to the effect of piece of something. We're going to take over all drug testing for all international events in France. And the IOC said, Houston, we got a problem. Mm -hmm. They're going to catch people. Mm. It's actually going to work because they're pushing us aside. Mm-hmm. So they call a conference, which you always do. 
it was a conference in Lausanne, Switzerland, in early, um, I think it was early 1999? No, 98. It was the fall 98. So they call it really quickly because they want to pretend to deal with the problem. So they, can, they call everybody in. And um, at the same time, I had seen... Um, um, he, uh, an article about um, Barry McCaffrey, who was Clinton's drug czar, who had committed a um, uh, million dollars of what was, it was called the Office of National Drug Control Policy. It was a cabinet-level position. And here was this commander of the first, first Gulf War, this general who is supposed to be guarding the borders from heroin coming in and stuff like that. He's committing to a drug test for an illegally used drug. I th- it was EPO. And um, I said, this is unusual. Well, it, it turned out that his press guy was a master's runner. Wow. It's always about that yeah, way, yeah, isn't it? it it's it, like, <laughs> it's, if you want th- something to happen, you better have some Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so yeah. I, I wrote to him, to mm. McCaffrey, and said, I, I, and I, I wrote to Clinton, actually, because mm. I, Bill Rogers and I had run with him, and I actually met him when he was governor of Arkansas in a race yeah. um, while he was governor. And so they write back and say, oh, yeah, this is good. So um, McCaffrey um, said, well, why don't you write a memorandum for me? Uh, because you know who these players are internationally. So I did. And then he, the White House, decided that they were going to put together a group to go over to this meeting. In 99. In 98. 98. And basically say, you're going to give up drug testing. You have to give up drug testing to an outside independent agency. Mm. And at the time, the IOC, oh, thank you very much, active listening. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, thank you, thank you for coming. And it turned out that several other nations, Australia, New Zealand, uh, France, and Germany, had sent cabinet-level people as well to this meeting. And I remember being out in the lobby while these meetings are going on in Lausanne, listening to these ministers talking about how they're going to work to get the IOC out of the drug testing business mm. in the Olympics. And, and so McCaffrey gets up, like I said, and says, no. And another aside, I got to speak to this group on behalf of the athletes because they'd also imposed uh, a statute of limitations on cheating that was like one Olympiad. In other words, you cheat and you don't get caught for four years, you're home clean. Mm. And and so, um, which is nonsense. Why, why is course, that so short? I don't know. Yeah. And and the reason, their reason was the samples don't save. And I'll never forget. We were in, sitting down at dinner, and and I was with McCaffrey, and we were the head of all U.S. drug testing for the government. Two million people a year they tested. We're and we're sitting down at dinner at this fancy hotel. And I got my room. And my room actually was for the IOC person who got busted for selling influence <laughs> at the 2002 Olympics. I got to stay in his room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was all this. Anyway, so we're at dinner, and I said, well, you know, they're saying they can't save samples. And I'll never forget, McCaffrey turns to this guy and says, can we save samples? And the guy goes, sure. And we all go back to eating. 
It was that simple. It was that simple. I hadn't really looked at it. We can't do it. Well, actually, we can. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and later on, that became part of the profile, mm-hmm. which is now being used. But this was 1998. And so McCaffrey gets up and tells them. And so they say, thank you very much. And we all go home. And a few weeks later, McCaffrey calls Juan Antonio Samaranch over from Switzerland and says, we've got to have a meeting. And the way I always put it is he flew over in that private jet. He didn't fly in because he didn't live like royalty. No, 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 of course yeah, not. he flew in. <laughs> and, and so he sits him down in an office building. No one knows he's there. It's an office building, out, you know, executive office building, hands him an outline. They'd been working on the outline of what turned out to be USADA. And that was the input that I'd given on, you know, how it should be and who the players were. And he said, this is an idea that the U.S. Olympic Committee is going to come up with. Hmm. And it's going to go into effect after the Sydney Olympics, you know, next year, over a year. And U.S. Olympic Committee is going to pay for half of this new agency and the U.S. government will pay for half of this agency, and it will be all of what you saw is now totally independent, in charge of the adjudication, all the appeals, everything. And if you don't do it, we'd also been in contact with John McCain. And John McCain actually contacted me. He'd written an op-ed piece I'd written for the L.A. Times uh, about this as it was going on. He got involved, and he had called Commerce Committee hearings after we'd all gotten back from Lausanne. And people show up and, you know, IOC didn't send anybody. USOC sent Anita to France. And again, they're going, what are they going to do? You know? Mm. And so, I'll go home. Samranch comes over and um, Barry McCaffrey says, and if you don't do this, and you can call it whatever you want, and if you don't do this, through the Commerce Committee, the IOC will lose its tax-exempt status for all its income from the Salt Lake City Games. Wow. Which was in 2002, right? Yeah, right. coming up. Yeah. So that's how it happened. Wow. I mean, if you think about all of that, what, it, it, it's that 90, 1976, the East German who has fueled this and you've become a part of this system now that has changed sport for the better so everybody can play – um, so it's almost like you, you, you might not have got the gold, even though I think we can all agree that you should have, but it was a great catalyst for, for getting this movement going. Would well, you agree? Again, you, you know what you can do, mm-hmm. you know? And I knew that, um, because, and that's why in a way I wanted to go through my education and sort of where I came from. Mm. And I, not only, you know, being a gold medalist, I I went to school. I went to university with... And you'd done your law degree. Uh, I, and, and, and I knew people, yeah. you know, people from my class at Yale well, that's were the, around Washington. When you go to the Ivy League schools, you right. become quite yeah, connected. And, yeah, and, and that, I think, to me, that was a good aspect, a positive aspect mm. of what they call the old boy mm. and now old girl network. Mm. You You can... You can use that positively, and I always felt that when I went in, um, you know, to a senator's office and tried to convince them that they should fund U.S. anti-doping, that I had a certain credibility that could get me in the door. Mm. It, 
maybe wouldn't I wouldn't be able to accomplish. No, but that's okay. To. It opens doors. Yeah, it opened the doors. Well, I think that you when you combine your Olympic gold medals with your law degree with your Yale, there's a tremendous journey there and education that you have that people go, hang on, this guy, this guy does stuff. This guy completes things. You know. Yeah, uh, you, you again, you do something affirmatively. You don't. Yeah. And not only in in the way I always put it is two things. One, you don't get up on a soapbox and call somebody an asshole and get down off the soapbox and say, now let's talk about it. Yeah, no, 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 no. You should, <laughs> you, it's called politics yeah, for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. And the other thing is, yeah. let them take the credit for it. Yeah. Let it be their idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine with me. Well, you, you've gotten used to it. People are taking your credit the whole time. <laughs> You've had seventy-two and seventy-six Olympics where people have taken you, taken no, no, you, your moment. No, but, but I, I think that was. Uh, and and yeah. again, to go back, and the other thing I'd, I'd like to talk about too, when we get back to, um, you know, Steve Prefontaine yes, before seventy-six, and that what what we were trying to accomplish the night that he died, we were having a conversation about in Eugene about what we were going to do. Um, well, let's talk about Steve Prefontaine okay. and. Um, for people who don't, don't know, a great education is to watch a phenomenal movie called Without Limits, which is basically Pre's life, which which Frank is in throughout because you were both very close. And I want you to – got a quick story on this. I moved to Canada in 2000 to help train with Simon Whitfield, who sure. went on to win the Olympic gold medal in 2000. And we were training really hard together. And Simon and I have been friends since 91, 92 and trained a lot together in Australia. And he said, Greg, you've got to watch this movie, Without Limits. There's this guy in this movie. It just reminds me of you. He's just, he's you. His name's Pre. I was like, all right, never heard of him. I'm watching this movie. I have no idea, no idea of the history of Steve Prefontaine. I'm an Australian kid that loved triathlon. And then the movie ends so abruptly with, with, with his car crash. And, and, and I was really shaken. It really affected me because it was, if you didn't know the history like I did, I was like, wow. It was, it was really an extraordinary. I mean, you guys were close. You were the last to see him. Yeah, he gave me a ride to where I was staying at Kenny Moore's house. We talked about Kenny Moore. You know, we had been mm. training partners since 1969. Mm. And Steve Prefontaine was one of the great milers to 5,000 meter. He came fourth at the 72 Olympics behind Lassie Viren, from the, the famous Finnish runner at the time and, and and Steve went for it and he was a he was a front runner much like yourself yeah, you know and he liked yeah, to toughen problem, up the race yeah. I was the only person that could really tell him he ran a stupid race uh <laughs> in in the Olympics and the fact that he shouldn't advertise what he was doing because mm. Ian Stewart who finished third in that race when he heard the Steve British said athlete, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna run under four minutes for the last four laps and and <laughs> Ian Stewart said it was like so we, we can all do so that. Yeah, four yeah. of us can do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so he, he, he sort of telegraphed what he was going to do, but that's, that's the way he was. Mm. But this entire track meet that had gone on the night of his passing had been in defiance of our federation because they had this tool they called certification. In other words, they could, if you competed in an event, either here or overseas, that was not, quote, certified, uh, you could be declared professional. And that's how they had the leverage to get us on the national teams mm. uh, when we first started to run because there was no other way we could go to Europe and run for money mm. like others did. Like everybody else. Because doing, we, yeah. they, they were the ones that basically had to give us a letter of certification that we were an amateur so we could be in the event in Europe. Wow. 
So Steve, and then they were pocketing the appearance yes, money that you guys yeah, were taking. Yeah. Wow. And so Steve put on this track meet, and only he could do it in Eugene because, you know, in Oregon, I mean, he mm. was he was an icon, mm. and mm. and deservedly so. And and so they we puts on this track meet. He invites basically the entire Finnish Olympic track and field team. Mm. And so this meet is not certified. So. What does the U.S. Federation do? Do they disqualify and ask the Finns to disqualify every one of their athletes? That have all flown over. That have all come over to run in this meet and disqualify every American that ran in this meet? So it was was a great in-your-face thing. Mm. And and only he could have pulled that off. Mm. And, and, And so that's what we were talking about. Um, that's in the movie too. All of yeah. that's in the movie. It's all yeah, very yeah. well laid out. And then yeah. we were going to, uh, again, talked about getting up the next day and going for a 10-mile run with a bunch of the guys. And um, he drove around the corner and we were up on a big hill, actually a butte. They call it Hendricks Park now, but it's actually a big butte. And uh, it's probably a 200, you know, 100-meter descent down to the bottom of the butte. Mm. And he just drove around the corner, and within a, about a little over a minute after he drove around the corner, he hit a wall, and someone was coming up this windy road and drove him off the road. Mm. And he ran into a wall, a, a bunch of stones that just happened to be there. If he'd, if he'd been driven off the road mm. 15 feet before, it wouldn't have had the same impact on the car and made the car roll and all this other stuff. It was just this sort of perfect storm for death. How, and, how did you handle that? Um, it, it really uh, impacted me for a long time mm. because, you know, I did, and I never really talked about it till many years later, but I did have survivor guilt mm. because my thought was, what if we talked for 10 seconds more or 10 seconds less? Mm. He wouldn't have been in that exact spot. Which is weary. Would have anywhere else. It wouldn't. It would have been okay. Well, I mean, he might have been hurt, but he wouldn't. Yeah, have, he wouldn't yeah, have yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think so. And there's a lot of evidence now um, that someone did drive him off the road, but it never, um, never got mm. taken care of. So that was uh, 1975. Mm. May 29th is when he hit the wall, and May 30th was. No, he died on May 30th. The The event was on the 29th, so mm. he died a little after midnight. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, but that's what we also, that's why when we worked to open up the sport for prize money, you know, those of us involved still and that was carried the, it on. That was when it all really changed around right. that time, right? I mean, from yeah. then on, when did the, excuse my ignorance on this, but when did things like the Golden League and these big events in Europe start? Oh, it, it was after that because, yeah. and here's the story. I had um, been in contact with the head of uh, U.S. track and field at that time. I think it was called the Athletics Congress. And ironically, it turns out this person is the one who's the villain in Without Limits. He's the head of the U.S. Federation. Mm-hmm. Now, he wasn't all bad, it turns out, um, because I had had contact with him before. And I had, um, again, another connection because his name is Olin Castle. He's from the 
coal mine area of Virginia. Uh, Virginia. And he, he was one of these kids who came out of a coal mining town and went to University of Houston. And Castle is not his real name. He changed his name. And he was the best 400-meter runner. And I think I hope we can talk about it this way. White 400-meter runner mm. in the country. And one of the best and probably maybe the best at that time. But he, and he made the Olympic team. But he got hurt. And in the Olympic trials, he didn't... Um, I think he was fourth, perhaps, but he got put on the team. And then at the Olympics, my coach at Yale was the Olympic track coach in 64. And someone got hurt, and my coach put Olin Castle on the 4 by 400 relay, and he got a gold medal. Yeah. So I... Yeah, they don't have that in the movie. (laughs) And and I, I actually had written him in 1980... And talking about this and bringing up the idea, because I had read the Olympic rules, and Rule 52 had said that the U.S. uh, Olympic Committee could uh, set up a trust fund, um, or no, U.S. Track and Field could set up a trust fund to which you could donate, and then they could use that trust fund to support athletes. You know, training camps, medical stuff. So it started that way. It started, well, no. It's that existed. Oh, it did exist. And so as a lawyer in legal terms, you say, I see no distinction between that and an individual trust Mm, mm. where an athlete could go win money, put it in their individual trust and use that for their, and for their living and their performances. And the argument was the East Germans are, are supporting their teams. Yeah. They're subsidizing their teams. They are professional athletes. They are professional athletes. Paid by the government. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. 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 And so, we came up with a formula for how much that might be. That mm. would, and there were more athletes on the International Track Federation from the West, more uh, yeah, federations yeah. from the West than there were from the East. So they had the votes. So they passed it. They passed this in 1981. And um, the Boulder connection is uh, we have a, race here in Boulder called mm-hmm. the Boulder Boulder. And a friend of mine who's a banker who had the bank, uh, Steve Bosley, he, he and I sort of had the idea for this race that now has 50,000 people in it. Mm-hmm. And his bank became the first trust repository for people. So you could set up your trust, put it in. And the idea was when you turn professional, you could get all the money. But it was it's just sitting there. It was, but it was uh, sitting there, and you, it would be an investment. It yeah, would feel like a pension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah. pension, but at the time, you couldn't take it out. That's okay. It. At least it's, it's almost forced savings. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And many yeah. foreign athletes did it. Yeah. And again, only recently have some of the African athletes who have had these trust funds that they haven't needed since like two years later, no one was paying attention. Mm. Track and field opened up, and then the Olympics opened up. And then, so they still had these funds that they didn't. They, because if they had them over here in this trust fund, guess who couldn't get their hands on them? Yeah. Their own federations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they've so. just come back and said, "Wow, it's been invested for forty years." <laughs> so anyway, that's that's sort yeah. of the the end of the story from what Steve and I were talking about yeah. in 1975. Wow. So it was like six years later. Well, well done, mate. Huge congrats. I want to I want to wrap up before we, you know, I, I mean, I want to keep going. I could go all day with you and I think we will. I'm going to have you up for beers and I think we're going to just keep going at a later date. But 
I guess the evolution of running has me fascinated. Um, you've seen it all. I mean, you've been around, you won your gold medal, it'll be 50 years next year right. since the gold, which, and I don't mean to age you, I just <laughs> seen, you've seen I, a I lot. Don't mind, I don't mind, uh, I, um, I like the fact that I'm here. But how much, <laughs> how much of you think that, um, how much has the world changed in the marathon sense? A lot or the times don't look, that much different. No, I, and, and we didn't talk about the shoes. We should. Well, I, I wanted shoes. to. I'm getting to the shoes. Okay, I, okay. I, but in in the general sense of the physical capabilities of the marathoners, from what you were doing in '72, '76, um, when right. I talked, De Costello and, and some of the Steve great Jones, Steve Jones across is, the is across the lake here. I mean, you guys were all running these these incredible times. Well, which it, I don't know that we've improved. Have we improved that much? Well, I mean, it did, and then the drug testing started to have an impact. Mm. Mm, it's sort of slowing it down a little bit. All of bit. a sudden, no one's running two, three mm. all mm. the time. Mm. Mm. And um, so I think that's had an impact. And so I think um, I think now it will, it will improve. I just think for from about 1976 through about 2005, when the impact of the drug testing and started to get into profiling rather than failing a test. And, mm-hmm. and, they, they, and Profiling and, means they test, they blood test you or, or, or drug test time. you over, over time. I know when I, <laughs> going into the 04 Olympics, they were testing me so often in Australia. And I'm like, I kept saying to Laura, look, they're here every week to two weeks. I really didn't know what was going on. I was really a bit scared. And then finally I found out uh, the Australian drug test said, actually, no, Greg, we were doing a profile because your hematocrits were pretty high and then low and we just wanted to show you know, when it came to the Olympics, that we could show that we've been tracking you for nine months and this is how your blood kind of worked. How I was like, oh, phew, thank you. Because I, yeah. I had no idea at the time, though. Right. So, and so yeah. the deterrent has taken over to a certain degree. Mm, mm. But that also means now that maybe, hopefully, it, they'll they'll not rely on the drugs and actually. But what about these shoes now then? We well, talk performance the, the, enhancing. Yeah, what what are your are thoughts? Pro- and, you know, the figures are like two, three, four percent. Well, they write them on the shoes. So. I mean, one company has, they actually, that's how they sell them. They say 4% or whatever. I mean. Right. And they're, they're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah. It, 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 um, Do you think it's like swimming, the swimming suit? Remember the swimming suits? Yeah, we had yeah. that and, 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 and that was swim- incredible. And uh, my wife, Michelle, talks about it. the swimming was so good about handling it. Mm. They just said. Stop. Boom. Done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think running will do that? Do you think we're uh, going to do that with these shoes or do you think they're here to stay? Uh because they're definitely performance enhancers. I, I yeah, don't know if you've you, tried you a pair on, but. but but I um, let's just put it this way: I don't think um, the swimsuit manufacturers have as much of mm. an influence over swimming as the running shoe manufacturers have mm. over running. I had Javier Gomez on the show. Um, I don't know if you know Javier Gomez. He's a nine-time world triathlon champion and silver medalist at the London Olympic, one of the real greats of our sport and just one of the most down-to-earth humble people you could meet. And uh, I said to him, you know, you're with on shoes. You know, have you got the, have they got the bouncy shoes out? He said, yeah, we've all got an equal playing field now. And he's not a fan of them either. Equally bouncy. Equally bouncy. Have you tried a pair? Have you tried? I I ran down a hallway and honestly... They work. I don't. I think with your strike, because you're so smooth and so fluid, that you might not get the benefits that I would. Where I hit the ground a lot harder, so there's yeah. a rebound that I would probably get more than you would because you're so smooth. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I, and what about this sub two hour? But why would I want to run a nine minute mile now when <laughs> I, I really? <laughs> when you I and can't, me both. When mate. I can't. <laughs> I haven't seen you running past the house. Are you running much? Yeah, at all? yeah. I, I haven't in seen fact, you. Out, though but, I've been. Getting back into, I run jog. Yeah, yeah. And then when I feel really good, I run. Yeah. But I work more on strengths. 
Yeah, yeah. And I've truly found that, you know, past 70, mm. uh, you know, the, the running declines there, but the, the strength is actually good. So I really depend on the fact that I can really maintain strength. Mm, mm. You know, again, is, I look, is that body work work? Or uh, oh, weights yeah, or, yeah, yeah, weights. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's machines, and I choose machines where you can't cheat. Mm-hmm. You know, a machine where a, a pull-up is really a pull-up yeah, and yeah, a dip yeah. is really a dip. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're talking old-school training here. Yeah, I like that, yeah. And, um, yeah, and, you know, you just, that's fine. Yeah. Again, it has to do with the love of the movement. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wait for that time when it really does feel good. Mm. I, I don't need for it to feel bad. No, 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 me either. I'm with you. I, but the thing is you get to the point, and we're not the same age, but we've had the similar experiences where you've had your turn and you got to really flourish and optimize everything you had. Oh, but that was so much fun at the Olympic trials. I'm looking at these guys running around the track and the five and the 10 and I go, holy shit. And then I say, shit, I did that. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? You look back and go, actually, I was one of those guys that could do, I could move like well, that. Well, for yeah. instance, my, my, I won the Olympic trial 10,076 in 2756. Mm. And the winner this time ran 2754. There you go. Isn't it amazing? I mean, they're, they're, you start to think. But he ran 52 for his last 400. Yeah. <laughs> That was an you know, so that changes a little bit. Yeah, that has changed a bit. What are your predictions for the Olympics coming up, being that, you know, we're a few days out from the opening and has America got a, a marathoner? Let's start there. I mean, the women, I, I feel like the American women have been outstanding. Um, yeah. But what about yeah. the men? Galen Rupp or somebody like that? Could he stir it up? Uh, I, I'd like to think so, but I don't. Mm. Mm. I don't think so. Well, you got Ilya Kipkoji, who just seems to be owning the marathon right now. Um, yeah, yeah. Who, and again, it uh, that has to do with you know lots lots of things. Yeah, yeah. And but but to be honest, it has gone back when you said about the performance. Now, if you factor in the bouncy shoes mm. and you see how fast they're running, mm. it it really isn't that much different. No, that in what they've been running the last 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. And, and again, just like the, the drugs sort of allowed for the improvement so people weren't looking for other ways. Mm. You know, it's, I think, and again, I may be naive on this, but I think I have enough, of, uh, enough information. I don't think on, you're naive at all, actually. I think you're worthy of a conversation about all of these things because yeah, you've been around and you've seen it. Yeah, mm. and, and again, like we said, you know mm. by looking at people. Mm. Um, on their performance. What about, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this, but a quick question because it just came to mind. Uh, Alberto Salazar and his training squad and what happened there. Do you, what were your thoughts on that whole well, thing? Well, again, I, I have to put on my USADA loyalty hat mm. here and, you know, he's he's got his appeal. Because mm. he'd be a friend of yours, wouldn't he? I mean, he was uh, around, well, a bit after you, wasn't he? Uh, right? Yeah, he was He was after. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was. Early 80s. Type um, group. Yeah. He, uh well, let's put it this way. When um, I would run the Falmouth Road Race, and he was from up the road, and at the time I was running Falmouth and doing well, and you know I won it a couple times, there were two kids who came down, and there was a doctor uh, that I stayed with one time, and, and two, two young guys uh, came and camped out in his backyard. They may have been... Um, even in high school at the time, but maybe just started, I think, at college. And the two people were 
Alberta, Alberto Salazar and Rudy Chapa. Mm-hmm. And Rudy Chapa is the guy in Eugene is in charge of. Oh, oh, okay. The whole, <laughs> the program they've had. Yeah. 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 And so, so you were it. after yeah. me. Yeah. 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 They were camping out in the tent in the backyard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, mate. Uh, it's been interesting. I mean, is Galen Rupp still with that group? Because uh, he I was a know. part of that, but he wasn't Yeah, well, he didn't qualify in the trial, so he's going to run in the... Yeah. And we'll just see. And again, yeah. I don't... I, I'm i I'm just not going to talk about um, individuals. No. no, no, no. Let's not do that for now. Yeah. All right, mate. Well, let's finish up with just a couple of questions before I let you go, because I've been... Taking, I loved all of this, by the way. I just have one. I like to finish this show with asking a guest sort of one tip that you might right. have for people on, you know, how they can optimize their own lives, um, kind of like you have, and what have you learned? To, again, I think we talked about it several times, realize in a way what your limits are, what you can do and what you can't do. Mm-hmm. And, and try to really focus and be willing to admit what you can and can't do and be happy and satisfied with it. The, the way you talk about setting goals, you know, reasonable, incremental mm-hmm. and, and um, attainable. Mm-hmm. And, and if you do that, then I think that's the way you can improve because if you're consistent about your training, then you can see the improvement. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's, that's really it. And then we talked about the compartmentalization. And that really involves being able to rest from that on which you're focused, whether it's professionally or athletically, um, to really realize that it is good to not be thinking about it all the time. Time away. Yeah. Time away and realize you need to recover mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid. Um, don't be afraid to do that. Um, and then uh, the other thing is look for mentors. Mm. And these mentors don't even have to know that they are mentors. Mentoring. <laughs> you. And, and um, it, it will be different for everyone. And I, again, coming from where I came, uh, horrible abuse. Uh, my sisters were, all, all I'll say is my sisters suffered mm. everything. Mm. Everything. And um, coming from that sort of situation, I looked for mentors early mm. in, in adults, but also in my friends mm. um, and even people on the, my athletic teams. And they probably didn't even know. Yeah. You, you just look for positive uh, You need a team examples. around you. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and, and that's the other point in whether it's in business or or faith or or athletics that this adage which is not trite um is that you find people that you can work well with together that are pretty much equal ability and you both or all get much better than you would individually mm. well you had that throughout your your athletic career. Oh, oh yeah. That was you, obvious you look with the people. names that you've mentioned and and the way that you all train together. I, I love when you mentioned earlier about, you know, we train on the on the recovery days as slow as the slowest person and, needs to go. And, um, and on the track, we shared. 
mm, the voice. That's why that's why Pre would run with me. Mm. He, he told me once. He said, "You're the only person who shares <laughs> that I run with." Mm. You know, you share, and then the race comes. You try to beat each other's brains. Of course, out. of course. But that's what brings you closer together. That's <laughs> yeah. what makes you mates. You right. know, yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. that's that's that. And then the other, I I read your questions before, and the other was um, um, an interview, a Zoom interview. Yeah. You know, Who do you want a coffee with, or a Zoom with, or who is somebody that you you know one living person that you would love to sit down and have a coffee or a Zoom chat with, or whatever? Yeah. Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason, and the reason is. You know, he was behind the boycott in the 1980 Olympics. Mm. And I think I can talk to him because in 1980, I was not capable of making our Olympic team. Mm. I, I did not run well in the Olympic trials. That's when I knew I was done that. And then in the track trials, I qualified, but I warmed up and I said, no, Frank, you, you're not ready. And so I didn't, I didn't run. Mm. I, I warmed up for the race and I was going to start. And I said, no, everyone's run so much don't faster. Don't even do the trials. Don't, yeah, don't, yeah. don't do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do this. And so I think I could talk to him and say, why? What, what was the basis of your decision to boycott the 1980 Olympics? Because I would like to know did you ask anyone who had any knowledge of international track and field to the extent of knowing um, what the rivalries were mm. between athletes at various events? Because I think you know where I'm going here, Co and Ovette. Mm. There was no way that Great Britain was going to pull out of the Moscow games when Co and Ovette <sighs> were sharing the world record at 800 and 1500 meters. That was some running, wasn't it, that time? Oh, there was that. no way. Yeah, yeah. And wasn't there anyone in the government that was going to stop that race? Who knew that mm, mm. and could tell you Great Britain's not, is yeah. going to go. Yeah, yeah. And, and that caved the boycott. Mm. So, that's that's why I would ask because he's done so many wonderful things. And then there's after, that. Yeah. yeah, you know, it was such a it's crushing, it such crushing a cr- dreams. A crown, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So and again, it's it's not denigrating him for all that he's done. No, but there's that there's that one thing. Yeah, yeah, there's that one thing. That it, it really, was, yeah. and you know, we all have those. Mm. And and I I and it's more. I'm not again. I'm, I'm, I just, I just have to, have mm. to know what the, what the thought process was because it was so important to, to so many people. Mm. So anyway, yeah. that's, that, that, that's. No, but we've even, I mean, on that, you know, we've seen, you know, even them postponing Tokyo one year and, you know, and I watched last year and I had a lot of athletes on this show even, and just, you know, it was heartbreaking to hear. And, and it does change it. One year is, it's a. It's a, it's a lifetime for an athlete to some degree, you know, right. and, but to do it a four-year block where you go from 76 to 84 for American athletes during that, I mean, that's, that's a whole new generation. I, I mean, always maintained um, when people would ask me about careers, and, and this pertains to young runners, and I think this is why it's a good point to do this. One, you don't overtrain them. Mm. And two, even if you're coaching, but more particularly if you're a parent, 
that I've always maintained, if you get five years in triathlon mm-hmm. or distance running, you're blessed. Yes, I agree. And it's five, and, if you can get to five, you, you have and when, and when you take those five years, it's your choice. Exactly, I agree with that. Do you want your that. kid doing it from 16 to 21? Uh-huh. Or do you want them doing it from yep. 23 to 28? Yeah, or a triathlon, maybe 25 to 30. We'll push it back just because yeah, it's a little yeah. bit old. But I agree with you. I think there's these five to <clears throat> there, there's these windows, and the really greats might push it out to 10 years. The, the, the exceptionals, the Federers, the, you know, that we can list a, a number, but track and field and, or Allison Felix. And, you know, there's a few that we've seen. But that they're are, anomalies. They're anomalies. But the rest of us, you can get five years. You're that's doing right. really yep. well. Yep. Yeah. You know, I agree with that. I like so, that. And, that. and again, that's what I try to say with the, the parents and, and the mm. coaches with their kids. Mm. You know, it just... Yeah. And, and people always talked about it as burnout, you know, particularly in swimming. Um, and it is there. It's the mental part, but particularly in track and field and, you know, the impact events, it's, it's the... Oh, yeah. You, it's you, the impact. You have so much, and I've said that for triathlon for so many times with the USA triathlon. It's uh, the American college system. They want something for the scholarship that they're giving you, and they're going to use it. And, and I'm like, do you want to use up four of your five years, as you put it, where you can, you got to be careful. Pick the right school, pick the right coach, pick right. the, you know, the one that wants the longevity for you, because these days you can have a professional career and you, you can have an income and you can live, you know, find your best, which I often find will be later in your, in your twenties. So, um, but Frank, mate, what's next? Let's wrap up here. You, um, well, next is tomorrow. I'm going to entertain 35 Latino runners from Texas that a friend of mine named uh, Pablo Vigil uh-huh. has in town training. Brilliant. Yes. Yeah. Cause every once in a while when, and it's nice to see because in the past, before COVID, teams would come into town to train, yeah. and I, they'd sort of come up to the house. I've seen a lot. Doing homework for this, I watched loads of YouTube videos of you and, and the amount of young athletes would come to you, just be hanging out with you at your garage, and yeah. they'd all be inspired and awe and just looking at you. And, yeah, ah. yeah, yeah. And so yeah. that'll be tomorrow. <laughs> That's great. Well, they're <laughs> but, lucky to have you. No, but it's, it's nice to be able to get back into that. Yeah. No, it's fantastic, mate. And yeah, and yeah. just just the way you tell stories and you paint the pictures and it's we feel like we're living these moments and uh yeah. it's been absolutely wonderful to have you just well, sit thanks. and chat with me, mate. I really appreciate well, thanks. it. Thanks, you're great. You're yeah. good at this. Oh, That's good. Oh, thanks, Frank. I appreciate it, mate. Now, for everybody else, uh you can find all the show notes, timestamps, links, and coupon codes at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Frank, thanks for coming on, mate. Thank appreciate you. it. Cheers, everyone. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.